This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Welcome to episode two of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. And with me today, I'm very privileged to have Dr. Mark Williams, who is an internationally recognised professor of cognitive neuroscience. Dr. Williams has worked at top universities in Australia and overseas, including MIT in the USA. He has been published in top-tier international academic journals, and he has been widely featured in the media, including the ABC, Sky News, SBS, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, and The New Scientist. Mark has studied how we learn and develop using cutting-edge computational brain imaging analysis and the adoption of new technologies like virtual reality and transcranial magnetic stimulation. He designed and convenes a very successful first-year neuroscience course at Macquarie University with more than 800 students and works with schools on improving teaching methods, learning outcomes, and student well-being. Dr. Williams developed a new teachers support website called Connect Teachers Academy. He runs regular courses, live chats, and lots of useful stuff for teachers. Mark, I understand you've spent many years researching the human brain and how it generates the reality we see. You're fascinated by how brains adapt and learn in different environments. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about your research. Um, So I was at the uh, University of Melbourne doing a PhD where I was uh, looking at different neuroimaging techniques Um, And then I went on to MIT in the US. I was lucky enough to get a CJ Martin Fellowship uh, from the NH and MRC here in Australia, which allowed me to go to the MIT in the US, which is number one uh, in the world for neuroscience and for engineering and for computer science. So it was a fascinating place to work. But it allowed me to work with people who are top in the area of neuroimaging, um, which allowed me to use new techniques. And that's where I developed a new technique for analysing uh, fMRI data, where we can actually look at what someone's actually perceiving while they're in the scanner. So rather than the old-fashioned way of doing it, which is just to present them with lots of images and then compare when they're looking at one type of image to another, we're able to use support vector machines and actually pull out the information from their brains to work out what they're actually viewing without actually knowing what they're viewing, which was a really new technique at the time. So actually, um, there's a lot of media around it, calling it reading the mind or reading the brain, uh, which you may have heard in the in the media at the time. Um, we're not really reading the mind, but it is a way that we can actually look at the patterns of neural activity and what they actually mean, so what they're actually generating to generate the perception that we have of, of reality or so-called reality but reality fascinates me because i think most people walk around the world thinking that they're actually seeing the world and it's not actually the world i mean most of what we see is actually an illusion created by our brains in what way well uh color is a great example so color doesn't exist in the world 
Colour is simply an illusion that we create, and we're one of the few animals that create an illusion of colour. Uh, we receive wavelengths of light, and our retina detects different wavelengths of light, or light, and then our brain picks up that signal of the different wavelengths of light, and then we can't see wavelengths, so therefore it creates an illusion that there's a colour there, but there's no evidence that there's actually colour out there in the world. And the colours that we see are all different, so you, the colours you see would be different to colours I see because we have different photoreceptors, different percentages of the different photoreceptors. So all the colours are different. We only name them the same colours because that's what we've, we've learned. When we receive that wavelength of light and we see that colour, we're going to call it a particular thing, which is, for example, red. But the colour that I would see would be very different to the colour you would see because, again, it's just being generated by our brains. It's an illusion. Uh, same as sound. You're only hearing sound now because a different... Um, because my voice is creating vibrations in the air and that vibration is going through the air and then it's hitting your um, ear, uh, which vibrates your uh, eardrum and then a couple of little... Uh, bones move and then cochlea moves and then little hair cells moves and then activity in the brain then causes you to have an illusion that there's sound but it's not a sound it's a vibration so there's actually no sound out there in the world either and there's no there's no taste and there's no smell because again they're all different reactions that we're having our brain gets this information and then creates an illusion so that we can perceive something so that we can see something but it's not actually what's out there it's just what our brain's creating you make perception seem sentimental <laughs> <laughs> well it is i mean the, the fascinating thing is we now know that the brain creates this illusion that we see or we feel or we based on our memory so we can only actually see what we already have memory trace for so i mean that's the thing that fascinates me about Kids, as they learn, to think about how, what a kid must be seeing before they actually learn what's actually out there in the world. It's just really fascinating to think about. If you can't actually see something until you know it's there, then what are you seeing before you know it's there? It also means that you know when teachers are teaching kids that they are actually changing the way they see the world. I mean, literally changing the way they see the world. It's not just this this concept of you know changing the way they think. It's the changing the way they perceive the world, changing the way they see the world. Uh, we did a study, I did a study many years ago. I had a student come over from France. Um, he's a brilliant student. And we looked, I'd studied facial expressions for a long time. And of course, as you know, there's six basic facial expressions that we all perceive. Uh, and it's always been assumed that they're automatic. So when you see them, you automatically you know, have a response in your brain which makes you think of that facial expression, happy, sad, surprise and so on. And one thing that had always worried me about that idea is that when you see someone who you really dislike and they smile at you, you don't think happy necessarily. You think something else, yeah? Um, and so we went to look at that. So we just got a whole bunch of photographs of a whole group of a group of different people who had different facial expressions and then we trained a group of subjects to um, identify those individuals as either very negative or very positive or neutral and we randomized which group they're actually in so that they didn't there was no system systematicity to the which face it was 
Um, and we told them, you know, that they were a really good person. They volunteered for all these organisations and they did nice things and they gave money to the poor and so on. Or they were really bad people, really bad, you know, pedophiles and those sorts of things and had little vignettes around those things. They spent a couple of weeks actually learning them so that they knew each of these people very well. And then we scanned them and we did just simple reaction time experiments with them while they were viewing different facial expressions. And we, we showed that both the amygdala responded to somebody who they thought was really an evil person, like it was a fearful response, even when they were smiling. Mm. And for a hap- for somebody they thought was a nice person, and when they saw that person, they would respond, the amygdala responded as though it was a happy face, mm. as though we've seen before, which really changed the way we thought about these facial expressions, that you actually have this automatic response based on what you know about the person as well as the facial expression of the person's actually showing. And we also showed just with simple reaction time experiments that um, you're much slower to react when the person's evil and they're smiling than you are if they're a nice person and they're smiling. Now, if the basic facial expressions idea that it's all automatic is true, then that shouldn't happen. You should be just as quick on both of those. Absolutely. Yeah, which is really fascinating. But again, it shows, you know, that most of what our brains perceive is based on what we know, not what is actually out there. So you're right, the training that teachers literally give children, they are training the brain. Mm, Yes. It's so powerful. So powerful. And it completely changes, you know, who they are and Mm. what they believe and, and what they perceive what they see, how they get around the world, which is quite amazing. So, Mark, you returned to Australia in September 2007 and you completed the NHMRC. Yeah, so the NHMRC is a National Health and Medical Research Council. That's the uh, government body that awards all the health and medical research grants um, that are put out by the government each year. So you completed that fellowship, taking up then a successful research position at Macquarie Centre for Cognitive Sciences at Macquarie University. That's correct, yes. And so um, we're actually, I was at MIT at the time and the director of the centre actually contacted me and said that there was a few positions going um, and asked me to apply. Um, So I came back and did the rounds at all the universities and Macquarie offered me a something I couldn't refuse, so I decided to come back. (laughs) And then in 2009, you were awarded the ARC Queen Elizabeth II Fellowship for five years. That's correct, yes. So the ARC um, gives out a whole bunch of fellowships and then they choose the top fellowship to give the Queen Elizabeth II Fellowship to. Um, So I I was very fortunate to be awarded the QE2 Fellowship at the time um, and to be given another five years fellowship, which is yeah, quite quite yeah, quite amazing to be on fellowships for that long because it's very yeah. very prestigious. Very prestigious, <laughs> very impressive. Um, and then you started the neuroscience for kindy kids program and got involved in several other outreach programs to high school and primary schools. Yeah, so we first started the kindy kids program. Um, There's a lot of research now showing that if kids aren't interested in science by the time they get to year three or four, then they're unlikely to do science after that. 
Um, so it's really important to get them really young. Um, and kindy kids are just so much fun to play with. And there's so many cool illusions that you can do with neuroscience and kindy kids. So um, we started running that. Uh, we were lucky enough we found a principal that was uh, very keen to support us. Um, and we've now, I presented that at the Society for Neuroscience conference two years ago in San Diego. Um, and yeah, it's now been adopted in a couple of different countries. Um, they asked us to write an article on it, and which was really cool. Um, but it's all based on uh, very simple illusions um, that can be done very easily. One of them, for example, is just a water task where we just have three buckets of water. Um, we have one really hot bucket, one medium and one really cold bucket. We get the kids to put a hand in the hot bucket and another hand in the cold bucket and they just leave them there for 30 seconds and then they put them both in the middle bucket and, of course, the water feels different whether or not their hands been in the hot bucket or the cold bucket um, and they get quite fascinated by where that is and then we can talk about adaptation and how that occurs um, and how important neural adaptation is, but we need to be careful about it. Uh, and then give them other examples, such as you know, having headphones on, as we do at the moment. Um, and if they put the headphones on, of course, their um, brain's going to adapt to the sound, to the how high they've got it turned up. And that's why it starts feeling quieter. And so they'll turn it up a little bit and turn it up a little bit until it gets too loud. And they won't notice that because they keep adapting to it and... You know, they don't notice until they go and put them back on later on and they've readapted that they notice how loud it is. But, of course, you can damage your ears doing that. So we talk about things like that of practical things that they need to be careful of, um, yeah, which is a lot of fun. And we get some really interesting questions as I well. I bet, <laughs> especially with such earlier and earlier use of technology. That y is important yes. that they know how to protect their ears as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Um, it's really important, especially because most of these kids are already using you know, mobile phones or headphones and all these sorts of things and watching things at, at close range and so on, which is, is damaging their retina and damaging their ears. So, oh, And I think we'll talk more about that. You say on your website that your wish is to inspire everyone to be curious about the world around them, to enjoy science as much as you do, or at least understand that science is important. And that's what you're doing with kindy kids right from that young age. Yeah, I think it's really important in this day and age that we're more aware of the importance of science. I think science often gets a bad rap, um, and I'm not sure why that is, but you know, science has given us so many great things. I mean, everything we've got is due to science, and we're all really scientists. We now know that our brains actually learn based on scientific method you know it's all hypothesis driven we our brain creates hypotheses and then tests those hypotheses and kids do it from babies do it as soon as they're born they start hypothesizing about the world and start testing the world and making you know it can be quite frustrating anybody who's had kids would know how frustrating it can be when they uh yeah tip things over um and then you put it back up right and they tipped it over again and then they put it and then they tip it up again and so on and they're just testing you know, their hypothesis testing. Um, and that's how we learn. And we know that that's how we learn. And so um, at some stage, a lot of people lose that. And I, I think that's really sad. I think we should all be constantly hypothesis testing. And I think now with the internet and the way Google runs algorithms in the background, which, you know, 
send us off in directions that it thinks we want to go. I think we need to be hypothesis testing and working out whether or not we actually believe what we're reading and what we're thinking about. So, you know, critical thinking. Um, critical thinking has become a big catch cry lately. It's really interesting because there's a lot of research now showing that you can't teach critical thinking. Um, and the reason you can't teach critical thinking is that to think critically about a subject, you need to know both sides of the argument. Yeah, And so you can't actually teach that unless you know both sides of the argument. So I can't think critically about whether a uh, particular mascara is any good because I don't know either sides of the argument. So I can think very critically about neuroimaging techniques and I can think very critically about VR because I've done a lot of research in VR. But I can't think very critically about some economic evaluation or um, I can't even think because yeah because I don't do it um, so you can't teach critical thinking from that point of view you can teach logic um, but unfortunately that's not what's been taught in schools what they're trying to do is teach them critically critical thinking and you you just can't do it because you've got to understand yeah both sides of the argument to actually understand whether or not so you've got to be an expert in whatever it is to think critically about whatever it is. Um, but we need to teach kids how to, how to think logically and how to test hypotheses and how to question. And I think those are, you know, hypothesis testing and questioning are things that great teachers allow their students to do, but most teachers, I think, are taught that classrooms need to be under control and so therefore letting kids ask questions that you know may come out of left field and you know it doesn't really happen and they have a ridiculous amount of curriculum that they need to get through and you know they've all on timetables and all the rest of it which means that if kids do want to go off on different tangents they they don't have the opportunity to so yeah i think it's something that's really missing from our education system and it's sad that we don't allow kids to think more <laughs> Your programs must promote that. Must I promote try that. very hard, yeah, very, very hard. <laughs> and you say that your website was developed because of the numerous questions that you do receive from parents and teachers? Yeah, so I started doing also the, the at Macquarie University, they have, uh, they're very, very big in the uh, LEAP program uh, where we go out to low socioeconomic status schools. Um, and so I got involved in that uh, a number of years ago, which was really exciting. So we spend a week usually in a different area. Just before COVID, we are down in Gippsland um, where there's a lot of um, islanders and so issues around because because of the market down there, because of the um, they have a lot of seasonal workers. So there's a lot of islanders there for the seasonal workers. So we went down there. Uh, just before COVID. Um, but yeah, so we go into those schools. And when I do that, I do get a lot of questions. We do breakfast sessions with teachers and um, parents. Um, and I usually present at that. And then I get a lot of questions, you know, around teaching. And a lot of teachers will grab me and latch onto me um, to talk about different issues that I bring up during my little presentation. And then we do a lot of night sessions as well. So last time we no the time before when we went up to the hunter region several people from the astronomy department came so we also had some night sessions as well um and so the um we had a lot of parents and kids come but yeah each time i do that i get a lot of questions so i did set up my my website so that we could talk about some of those issues and i could write some blogs on those issues um i also get very frustrated with the amount of technology that's being used in schools these days um 
there's Australia is number one in the world for technology in schools. So we have more tech in schools than any other country in the world. Um, we also have kids spend more time on tech than any other country in the world. And yet we're sliding in science, maths and literacy. And we have been for the last 10 years since we've started adopting this Let's Go technology. Um, we know that kids learn better from teachers than from technology. Uh, there isn't any research showing that the apps that the government spends a lot of money on actually work. Um, the, there's no scientific research showing that having a kid on a device is better. In actual fact, most of the research, vast majority of the research shows it's much worse. Kids, you know, we, there's a whole bunch of research showing that if you give a kid a printout um, of a PDF and then you give another child, another student, uh, the same PDF but on a device, and then you test them after the same amount of time, uh, the child who got it on a piece of paper will do better on the exam. Uh, that's you know unequivocal. There's heaps of research showing that that's true. Uh, we also know that if you write with a pen, you remember the information better than if you type it. Uh, again, a lot of information, lots of research showing that. So why we have kids on devices, I don't understand. Uh, gaming disorder is now part of the diagnostic manual. Um, it's alongside drug addiction and, and gambling addiction. So why you would be gamifying these apps uh, is just beyond me, really. We know that, you know, when you do something which you know is causing an addiction you're then it's then going to be a gateway to a you know a stronger version of that to get extra dopamine and so on and so having these gamified educational apps that then will you know probably lead some of these kids to more serious gaming and then we know gaming then leads to gambling addiction it's it's really you know quite scary that these things have been um, yeah, recommended by the Australian government and the Victorian government, New South Wales government and so on. Absolutely, I had no idea. And in fact, you say that uh, devices are designed to be addictive. They are, yeah. There's no doubt about it. My, uh, I, I, I was, I mean, I, I suppose you call it lucky enough. I, when I was at MIT, the two things happened which were, were really, really interesting. One of them was Mark Zuckerberg was at Harvard University, and MIT and Harvard University actually overlap. So they, their campuses overlap, and students can go to either of those. And so he was a student at Harvard when I was a, at, um, a research fellow at MIT, um, and he released Facebook um, just before I arrived. And, of course, it was only released to MIT and Harvard students because it was a dating app. Um, but I saw that from its infancy when it was first released all the way through to what it is today. And on Facebook, they've, they've admitted that they actually use intermittent reinforcement to increase the likelihood of return, which is basically saying they're using it to get people addicted to it. So, you know, they've, they're honest about that, which is good. Um, but we need, we need to be aware of that. And the other social media apps do the same thing. And we know that. Um, and the devices, all of the devices and the apps work off this um, likelihood of return, which is the same thing that the casinos use, which is likelihood of return, which means that how likely is a person going to stay on that app or that device and how likely is it get they're going to return to that device or app. So um, 
we've created this because it's all free we've created a really scary monster i think because we're not paying for any of it so therefore to make money out of it they've got a market on it and b they've got to get hundreds of thousands of people you're actually using it otherwise they're not going to get any money for the marketing and the way you do that is of course get people addicted to it and get people and we we know you know Teenagers in the US now have phantom buzz syndrome. So they have you know, buzzers on their legs when they um, don't have their mobile phone on them, uh, which is a physical addiction to their phone. Uh, From having the phone on vibration. On vibration at in other their times. pocket. Yeah, all yes. the time. I was in, um, just before COVID again, I was in Queensland uh, presenting to a whole bunch of uh, principals up there. And one of the principals came to me afterwards and he said when he takes, he's got a uh, smartwatch, when he takes his smartwatch off at night, he gets phantom buzz on his wrist and he has trouble going to sleep because of the fact that he gets his phantom buzz on his wrist. So that's obviously going to be the next <laughs> area of concern. You've said that this may be linked to separation anxiety or attachment anxiety. Yes, it's separation or attachment anxiety. So we know teenagers... And adults uh, get extremely concerned and some will have panic attacks if they forget their mobile phone or if their mobile phone runs out of batteries. Um, and so, and that is separation anxiety. To be having panic attack when you don't, when you're separated from something um, is separation anxiety. It's nothing different to that. And the fact that most Teenagers in the US are on a screen more than nine hours a day and they're never more than a, 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 you know arm's distance away from their mobile phone. Uh, yeah, is, is a concern. And it's an experiment that we're doing on the next generation, um, which we don't really know what the outcome's going to be. But you know, a lot of the evidence now shows that it, the earlier a child is on a screen, the more likely they are to have ADHD. The more often they're on a screen, the more likely they are to get diagnosed with ADHD symptoms. Um, cognitive ability is decreased when you're on a screen. If a child or a teenager has a mobile phone within reaching distance, you get a significant drop in fluid intelligence and in their um, short-term memory. So, you know, both things, those things are affected by them having their mobile phone close to them. And that's real concern when you think, what are they doing when they're studying? Or, you know, where's the phone when they're studying? Where's the phone when they're at school? Uh, here in New South Wales, they're still allowed to have their phones on them when they're in school, when yet they're in, in some, classes. Yeah, exactly. And yet in some schools they're banned. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was up in Queensland at a school where they've now, even though Queensland hasn't banned the mobile phones, it's a public school um, where they've created, they've got pouches now um, where the students have to put their mobile phone in the pouch and then it's locked when they come onto the grounds and then they can't actually access it again until they leave the grounds, which is a great idea, a great way to actually control the mobile phone issue. And um, teach boundaries. And teach, yeah, boundaries. We need boundaries. We, we definitely do. need boundaries for kids. And it's very frustrating because when I present, I often get parents or teachers, you'll get a couple who put up their hand and say, but they're 21st century learners or they're digital natives, so therefore they're different in some way. And it's it's such a bizarre idea that because they were born in the 21st century, they're different in some way to us, and they're not. They're the same genetic material. We can't 
evolve in one generation. It takes hundreds of generations to evolve and thousands of years. It doesn't happen overnight. Now, all of the evidence shows that the 21st century learners, those born in 21st century learn, are less able to control their attention when devices are near them. So they're actually less capable of using them, um, have more problems with attentional disorders and have more problems with anxiety and have more problems with stress and have more problems with lower cognitive ability. So they're actually not as bright as what we were, you know, previous generation. Um, and the only thing that's happened in that generation is the devices. It's the only real difference between that and any other generation. They're, you know... We haven't had any major wars or anything like that that could affect... We haven't had any you know, problems with supply chains where we haven't had food available for them to to eat or anything. You know, they're all well-fed <laughs> and well-looked after. So, you know, I, I can't see what else that could be due, due to. And, and there it is, um, perhaps, that devices are lowering our resilience in some ways. Um, I was shocked to read where you say that if a smartphone is nearby an adult, that's equivalent to one standard alcoholic drink. Yes. And yeah, so if you're, if you're in a car, if you're driving your car and you have your mobile phone turned off and in your glove box, um, that's equivalent to being 0.05. <gasps> and that's if it's turned off and in your glove box. You have 10% of your attention on your phone even if it's turned off and in your glove box. The only way you can get all of your attention back is to have it somewhere where you can't actually reach it, where it's actually physically not accessible. So, And, of course, if it's beside you and it dings or rings or buzzes or does any of that, even if you don't reach down to grab it, even if you try to ignore it, all of your attention goes to the mobile phone. And dependent on your ability to shift your attention which varies between individuals it can be anywhere from 30 seconds up to 90 seconds which of course that's an accident right that yes. you've hit a kid by then um which is really quite scary and that's if you don't actually attend to it if you actually then answer it even if you answer it without using your hands you know it there's your attention for a period of a longer period of time now of course with teenagers and children they don't have fully developed frontal lobes, and the frontal lobes control your attention. So they're working off even less capacity to control their attention. And you're giving them mobile phones, which are capturing their, constantly capturing their attention. It's, yeah, it, it seems completely ludicrous to someone who actually studies attention to be doing that to a child. Absolutely, and more of us should be studying this. So back in the 1940s, we had the technological revolution, and... <laughs> All our computers began taking over our lives. But we considered that this was positive, building resilience, advancing humankind. And now we are talking about the negatives and this almost mushrooming effect of disorders that are resulting from uh, devices. And you say smartphones are making us dumb, actually. And I think you've explained a lot of why you think that. Mm -hmm. Um You've also talked about how we need to disconnect to reconnect, I think is one of your great phrases. And so overall, I mean, I know you're fascinated with technology and its use in medical science and practice. Um, overall, is personal device use not worth it? I think it, I think there are some great advantages to it, but I don't think we're taking advantage of it. And I think that's a real problem. Um 
It's so, taking advantage of us. It is taking advantage. Well, they're taking, I think they're taking advantage of us, which is a sad thing. Um, I, I was actually at MIT when the first iPhone came out, which is a fascinating place to be, to have the first iPhone come out. Um, I was in the building opposite the Bill Gates Centre um, when the first iPhone came out. And the first iPhone wasn't actually developed by... Well, it wasn't exclusively developed by Apple. It was a joint venture between Apple and AT&T. AT&T is a huge phone company in the US. Um, and that was so that they had exclusive rights to the iPhone. And so when it was first released, you had to have it... Um, you had to sign up to AT&T as a subscriber... But within about an hour, the uh, MIT students released a patch which would get you around that so you could actually get on and put it somewhere else. And so Apple then put a patch on the iPhone so that if you use their patch, then it was disabled the phone. And it, this went back and forth for a while until Apple realised, well, I think they realised, I assume they realised, maybe it was just an accident, but I think they realised that this could be a great advantage to them because they would have hundreds of thousands of developers out there who weren't working for them but developing apps for them. So, you know, they then had, a, had to negotiate with AT&T and then they released the Apple iPhone and made it accessible to developers to develop their own apps and the Apple iPhone, um, the Apple App Store was then uh, created so that they could download them on there. But this created a... A storm, right? Because then you had hundreds of thousands, millions of developers who could all develop their own apps. But you don't make any money out of an app unless it's extremely popular. Now, say it's you're more likely to win Tats Lotto than you are to come up with an app that's popular that's going to make any money at all. Because you know they're all a dollar or two dollars, so you've got to sell a lot of them to actually make money. So this created this this yeah this awful storm where the developers now have to create apps that you can't live without. And by doing that, you know, the easiest way to do that is, of course, to have intermittent reinforcement schedules running in the background so that you feel as though you can't do without it. And that's where we've ended up. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of the phone was, well, one of the great revolutions of the phone was that, you know, we would be able to, uh, work less and we'd be able to, you know, get our emails from home so therefore we wouldn't have to go into the office and so on. And now we're all working longer hours. Everyone's busy. I talk talk about um, people being busy rather than productive and it's become a real mark of success now to be busy, which is crazy because if you think about it, I've been reading quite a lot about it recently, but if you think about it 20, 30 years ago, um, the mark of success was that you had leisure time, that you didn't, you weren't busy, yeah, that you actually had enough money that you could Absolutely. go out on a yacht mm. or you could get away from work or you could go and play golf or you could have your long lunch and all the, the rest mm. of it. And that was the mark of success. The mark of success now is being busy all the time and everyone's busy. Um, and I think, you know, for some reason that's co-evolved with the development of the smartphone um, and the use of the smartphone, everyone being addicted to their smartphone. And I think now people feel as though they're important if they're on their phone, which means that we're not connecting with people anymore. It's so sad when you see people at a party and they'll you know, all be on their smartphone. I find it awful. I also volunteer as a surf lifesaver. And, yeah, I find it really sad on the beach when you'll see a group of teenagers and they're all on their smartphones. It's a beautiful day and it's sunny and 
they'll be sitting there on their smartphones rather than actually getting out there or, or talking to each other. Um, or, you know, you'll go to... There's some great studies now coming out of the US showing that kids whose parents have smartphones or carers, primary carers, use smartphones, um, have less empathy and less ability to perceive facial expressions than other children. Um, year, uh, what is it, 11-year-olds? They took a bunch of 11-year-olds in the US and stopped them from using iPads or smartphones or any sort of device for only five days, and they showed a significant improvement in their empathy and ability to read facial expressions, which again shows these kids don't have normal empathy or ability to read facial expressions. That's which frightening. Which is really scary, really, really, really scary, yeah. Because we know, of course, in psychology and mm. science that that breeds narcissism, mm. which is entitlement, which is selfishness to a fault. And, and we don't what's need... happening in our society exactly. at the moment. <laughs> Look, we can only hope that things like pandemics might bring a backlash to fundamental values, a return to those values of socialisation, really connecting with people, as you say, switching off the phone, um, taking advantage of devices, I think you mean, by, by having boundaries, by having better management so mm. that we're in charge of them. The mega companies aren't in charge of Tech us. Tech companies, Tech yeah. companies aren't yeah. in charge no, of us. absolutely. The first thing I do when I get a new smartphone or a new laptop um, is uh, turn off all the notifications so that I choose when I'm going to actually look at my email or when I'm going to look at LinkedIn or I'm going to look at whatever. Um, and then I schedule in my schedule when I look at those things. Good advice. Rather than responding, yeah, because at the moment we all just respond to it. And it's a pain in the butt because it takes about an hour to find how to turn those off every time I get a new phone because they hide them. <laughs> It's just so frustrating. But you can do it. It just takes a little while to find um, because they're all different. Um, but, yeah, turning off all those notifications, you don't need little pings, you, like those little buzzes and the little numbers that come up to tell you, oh, you've got three likes and so on. That's all about intermittent reinforcement. That's all about getting you back there, giving you little dopamine hits so that you'll get addicted to it. So you've got to turn off notifications, you've got to turn off the buzzing and the dinging and all of those things for all your apps. And this will make kids smarter. Yes. This will prepare kids and help them develop the skills that are needed for the future, mm -hmm. which those kids that are staying on their devices are not going to develop as quickly. They're going to become dumber than the kids that get off their devices, manage their devices and learn these soft skills that are needed for the future, as you say. Um, more so than technology skills are needed for the future because computers will be doing a lot of this work that a lot of people and children are learning on their devices, whereas humans that will have an advantage in the workplace will be those ones with the soft skills. So what is future-proofing? So the idea of future-proofing is that kids in the, this generation are going to have to be able to do jobs that we weren't doing, that we aren't doing, yeah? The, the, the first, first, there's this idea, futurists, which, you know, to, to be honest, I think futurists are really just you know, a modern-day version of the, um, 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 what do you call them? The Shaman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, they frustrate me because they're never true. I mean, when I was a kid, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we were told that robots were going to take most of the jobs and then we were going to have no jobs left and, you know, we're going to have to do who knows what. Uh, it never happened. I mean, and coffee, I'm a huge fan of coffee, and I think coffee is a beautiful example of why that is complete bollocks. Um, and, and coffee, you can already, there's already robots that will make your coffee. You can go to a 7-Eleven and there's a robot there that you can press a button and it'll make your coffee. But people don't go and get robots to make them coffee, right? We go to a barista and we get charged three times the amount because we like human interaction. We actually like having someone who's going to smile at you in the morning and say, G'day, Mark, how are you? Good. Now, I can whinge to them if I've had a bad day or I can you know, have a chat to them if I don't. They know how I like my coffee and then I sit down um, and... Uh, yeah, that one of the waiters or whatever talks to me. When, um, and I have friends who often drop in there who I talk to as well. So I don't want to go to and get a, a, a robot to make me a coffee. We also know that there's the uncanny effect, which is that we don't like robots. And there's a huge amount of research showing that we have no empathy for robots and we actually don't like robots being in the same room as us because they make us uncomfortable, they make us feel uncomfortable. And there's many reasons for that. But a lot of researchers over the last 10, 15 years have tried to get around that and they can't. They, they don't know how to do that. So robots aren't going to be in most service industries. The other thing is um, the biggest growth industry in Australia and in most developed countries is the health industry and robots are never going to be psychologists and robots are never going to be OTs and robots are never going to be nurses and doctors and so on. So, you know, the biggest growth industry is health and it's about over 30% of people are now employed in the health industry and it's growing every year. The one industry which has actually been on de in decline in the US since, 19, since 2017 is IT. And it's been in decline because it got to a maximum just not long after the apps were released and everyone was doing the app stuff. And now it's in decline because all of the developer jobs are now going to Asia and India. India is the biggest increase in developers. Um, and the reason for that is that anybody can do a course online to learn how to program. And so you've got a lot of people in third world countries who get hold of a laptop, learn how to program and then work for these companies where they outsource all the programming because programming is a boring as all shit job. I can program in six languages and I hate it. Wow. It's really, really boring. So teaching kids how to code is a complete waste of time unless they're going to go and live in India or in China. And if they're going to do that, then yes, they can, but they're going to be minimal wage workers if they do that. And also Elon Musk supposedly, I've been told, has come up with a new program which will convert normal syntax, just normal writing in Word, into code for you. So you can just type what you want and then it'll be converted to code. There's also so much code out there now that you can cut and paste most things. So you don't actually need to know how to code. You can just take it from all the open source. Um, so 10 years ago, when I used to advertise for PhD students, one of the main criteria was that they could code. I don't have that on my applications anymore because it's much cheaper and much quicker for me to send it overseas and get it done. And it's done in about a week and it's done well. Um, rather than getting a PhD student to do it and take three months and then have to spend a month debugging it because it's not done very well. Um, 
So we know the future skills are needed are soft skills, as you're saying. The future skills are the soft skills. So yeah. the things that we're going to need if you're a doctor or a nurse or a psychologist or an OT or a carer or you know the myriad of jobs in the health industry. You know, our population's getting older, so that's going to get even more. Yeah, need. Um, and there are uh, fascinating jobs like yours in the health industry where are. you're using r- reality. You're reality, using real technology. And and to be honest, I don't need the the other reason I got involved in this is that I, I run a first year neuroscience course. Now I hadn't done any teaching for I'm not going to say a long time um, between. I did my PhD and then I went to Melbourne University and I taught at Melbourne University uh, for a couple of years. And then I had fellowships from then for uh, the next 12 years. And so I didn't do any teaching. And then I started my first neuroscience course. And I designed it with a colleague who is from the US and it was great. Um, we were hoping to get 50 students and in the first year we got over 200 students, which was fantastic. But... I was overwhelmed by the fact that after my first lecture, I had so many emails from students who just didn't understand what I was talking about. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? And they didn't understand simple concepts such as ions, you know, positive and negative ions attract and, and um, positive and positive repel each other. And I was like, what's going on? And so I spoke to a couple of my PhD students who are a bit younger, just a little bit younger than me. Um, and they said, well, you've got to think about it. They don't use... They don't, they don't learn how to do those things anymore because you don't put batteries in things anymore. Yeah. You plug things in. And you don't do scale electrics or um, train sets anymore where you've actually got to wire things up. Mm. It's all done on an iPad or on a computer and you play it. Games are played on computers. They're not played in real life anymore. So they had no reason to know what positive and negative or how to... And they're not taught it at school anymore. And also, of course, they're about a year to a year and a half behind where they were 10 years ago because we know they've dropped by about a year and a half. Yeah, High schools Mm. have now dropped. So year nine students are about a year behind. So by the time they get to year 12, they're actually about 18 months behind. And so by the time they get to university, they're a year and a half behind. Um, And they don't catch up. So the students I was teaching when they would have been at the end of year 12 level, now they're at their halfway through year 10 level. So I had to completely rejig all of my lectures. And I spoke to a lot of professors and they were like, yeah, over the last 10 years there has been a slide and we've had to readjust every year and it's gone down. And that really scared me. It's like, mm. why yeah. are we tolerating this? Why, yeah. why is a society, is this okay that our students are coming out of high school a year and a half behind where they should be. And why are they a year and a half behind where they should be? Because mm. they really shouldn't be. And a lot, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the curriculum is full of extra stuff that it doesn't need to be. That, you know, kids... That coding is compulsory when, again, it's why. Most kids are never going to code. Vast majority, you know, you're probably going to have... 0.5, if you're lucky, percent of the students are going to learn how to code. Gee. Yet they're all going to know, need to know how to write. Mm. And they're all going to need to know simple mathematics. And, and communication. And communication and understanding empathy yes. and understanding how to collaborate. And these things you don't learn on a device. And, and being so resilient. Being resilient. Yeah, all those things that you really need mm. to understand. Being able to cooperate with people, being able to read body language, mm. being able to negotiate. 
those are things we should be teaching these kids and we're not. We're teaching them these other skills which, you know, are supposedly future-proofing them and they're not at all. They're quite the opposite. They're getting them ready for some world that's not going to exist and that's that scares me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and the results you're finding in groups of students where phones have been switched off, where they can do these things that we're talking about, these soft skills of team building, networking, working together, concentrating, learning from their teachers, whereas those with phones still switched on or next to them are not absorbing these skills, aren't developing, aren't displaying these behaviours. So we know that kids still can respond if they're in the right environment. Mm, and you're, you're a perfect example of a kid who when you were a kid, obviously didn't have a good environment to respond to. So you know what it, what it's like to struggle as a, as a kid, not fitting in at school or not re- not uh, receiving from education what children need. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was a truant from grade five onwards. Um, I grew up in a small country town in Victoria. Um, it was back when corporal punishment was still in schools, so... Um, a good way to avoid getting the strap or the cane was just not to go to school. Um, my mother had mental health issues, which, of course, mental health issues leads to drug issues, and there was a lot of drugs in the town. My father was a workaholic, and now looking back on it, I think that was a way of him coping with the situation. Um, so, yeah, I was about 14 when my principal told my parents I'd be dead or in prison by the time I was 25, which... Yeah, it really does put a mark on you. It really, as I was saying before, you know, what we learn is the way we perceive the world. You know, what we know about ourselves and what we know about the world is the way we perceive the world, and that's how I perceive the world. Um, so I, yeah, moved to Melbourne as early as I could, and yeah, couch surfed. These days, I think it'd be called homelessness, but back then it was couch surfing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so couch surfed until I was about twenty-five. And at the age of 25, I went back. At that stage, I was actually up here. Um, when I was about 21, I got on my motorbike and rode up here after a girl, which wasn't a good idea because I think she came up here to get away from me. So <laughs> some <laughs> advice for all those out there, don't chase girls. <laughs> Interstate. <laughs> um, yeah, when I was 25, I actually decided to go back and get my HSC uh, TAFE. And that's where uh, both a maths teacher and a physics teacher, I think because I was older, uh, it was TAFE It was TAFE at Ultimo. Um, and back then it was pretty, Ultimo was really rough. This was before it was gentrified. Um, yeah, and they saw something in me that I'd never seen before. I was back at school just so that I could get a decent job. Um, but they saw that I had a lot of potential, which I'd never seen before. And, yeah, it really made me believe. So I went and did – I got into – I actually got into medicine at Sydney, but I didn't want to do medicine. I didn't like people at that stage. Um, and so I didn't do medicine. I decided to do science um, and, yeah, fell in love with science and ended up doing, yeah, a double major in physiology and psychology, which is very unusual in those days um, to combine the hard sciences with so-called soft sciences. They call it soft science, but it's actually much harder than the hard sciences. <laughs> um, I believe you. Which is, which is, yeah, quite, quite ironic. It is. But yeah, so it was, it was that that, and then when I got to university, you know, the university is a wonderful place um, for anybody. 
And it's why I do the LEAP programs now because I go and speak to students from low SES areas and talk about the fact that it can change your life and it can change you know, other people in your family's lives as well. How inspiring. Which huge. Yeah. I, your story is so inspiring. And then that you use your story, your experience to help others. I think that's what I love about psychology, when people can turn adversity or struggle into something gold. And it almost makes sense of the struggle, almost. Yeah, no, it does. I Actually, uh, one of the directors who runs the LEAP program, uh, she, a wonderful, wonderful person, she was leaving. So she, she now runs programs for foster home kids um, where they get together and she puts family members back together for this camp and stuff like that. It's beautiful stuff. But when she was leaving, I said to her that, you know, it made my childhood make sense to actually do what she'd asked me to do. Um, yeah, and she, she, she's not somebody who usually cries, but she was oh, she was tearing up over that one. But it does. It, it gives, yeah, it all makes it worthwhile. Mm. But it's funny when you're in the situation, I mean, anybody else who's been in those sort of situations would know when you're in the situation, it feels normal. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing is that you don't realise that it's the only it's normal you know. Different. Yeah, because it is only, especially when you're a kid. Mm. Um, and it was pretty rough, the town I was in. So there was a lot of violence and a lot of drugs. Um, and yeah, I look back now. Well, I look at my kids um, and you, I would hate them to go through that and to see the violence that I saw. But yeah, it feels normal when you're in it. But not well, anymore. You're not. No, it's not normal. And it, it, normal. it gives what you say more gravitas about children's welfare mm. and the effects on children that is unnecessary, given that there's already whatever situation in their family home or their town that they're struggling with and add on top of that extra struggle and r reduced resilience by overexposure to devices. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you look at the slow SES, there's been a lot of different programs where they've funded giving laptops to low SES kids and all of that has shown that it doesn't actually increase and it actually often increases the divide. You know, It makes them worse off by the fact that they've got these devices for multiple reasons, but one of them, of course, is that these poor kids then go home with the laptop and they don't have the support at home that somebody from you know a wealthier family would have, and so they then get on you know the whatever sites, um, and of course we all know the bad ones that are out there, and they don't have the normal supports and so on to stop that, uh, and it, yeah, it causes real issues for them, and often truancy and so on can can increase when they've got their own laptop, uh, which is really sad um, and something that I think we need to look at. I mean the. It's sad because the research around that was really good. So the reason we thought that would be a good thing was there was a great professor in uh, India who thought his laboratory was near a huge slum in India and so he put a laptop or a computer in a wall there to see what would happen. And, you know, this huge slum with hundreds of thousands of people, there's a couple of kids that actually used the laptop and learned how to use the laptop and it was like well that's fantastic these kids can learn by themselves which is true but if you think about it the slum in india is very different to australia 
outback Australia or, you know, western suburbs of Sydney or wherever. And so the environment's very different. And also there you're talking 100,000 people. So those small number of kids that actually learned how to use it would have been right up the top end Mm. of the intellectual scale, right? And so therefore that's why they were successful, not your average kid who just gets given a laptop and takes it home and, yeah, Yeah. starts looking up porn sites. Yeah. Which is what happens. Porn, porn, yeah. porn now is huge, huge issue. Twelve-year-olds and eleven-year-olds. I, I was teach, I was teaching. I was, um, well, I was teaching. I was presenting to a, um, doing a course for a whole bunch of school psychologists, and then afterwards, one of the school psychologists came up and spoke to me, who she's also a mother, um, and she was saying that she let her. I think it was six... No, it wasn't hers. She, she was talking to a parent who let their six-year-old go to a friend's house. She was driving her uh, daughter home from this sleepover and the daughter asked her if it was normal for men to urinate on women because the friend, the daughter's friend, had an older brother who was 11 or 12 and he had a mobile phone and he was showing them. Yeah. <laughs> Different, uh, yeah, sites, shall we say? Oh, uh, and it causes so and much. It just causes so much anxiety. Yeah, and anxiety and problems mm. later later on, especially for poor young men. I think who yes. really can't cope. Adult males who tell me about their problems with porn. You know, it's hard enough for the adult brain mm. to cope with and try and recover from and and um, get rid of the the habit of addiction. Yeah, it's another it's it's another huge problem, and there's uh, I, I, again, uh, apart from restricting the phones, I don't know how else you get no. around that. No, um, you have to. Yeah, which yeah. is yeah, scary. The pandemic, um, where there's even more use of the devices, so the very thing we need less of, we're having to be more of. Yeah, have more of. Although it's been good in a way. It, I did a. Um, for a business thing, they, they were talking about productivity and wanted me to talk about the devices and so on. Um, and one of the questions the, the, the interviewer asked me was, uh, what are some of the positives that you think have come out of the pandemic? And I said to her, well, what are some of the positives you think? And she said, well, it's been lovely because my husband and I are both at home, so we stop at dinner time and we all have dinner together. And she said, I really hope that we can maintain that afterwards. And I was like, yeah, that is beautiful, right? That is a really nice aspect to, I mean, hopefully people are doing that, are actually are stopping and having dinner together. Absolutely. What scares me is a lot of people probably aren't. But yes. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to do things like that, to stop and actually just you know, have dinner together. Um, but what scares me again is there's lots of talk in the education department and in schools about not going back to the old way and, you know, instigating this e-learning and all the rest of it. And it's it's not good. I, I, I had a principal contact me on LinkedIn only last night. I got up to the message this morning saying that um, he's at a boys' school and he was saying that he's in Queensland and so they're just, they're just coming back from holidays today and he was saying that the boys were really stressed by the end of last term because of the devices. And he said it's going to be good because now they've had a detox over the holidays, hopefully. Um, they'll be feeling better. But, you know, at least that's a principal who's realising that the, the devices are negative. Um, I also work with, yeah, you know, several 
groups in uh, health, um, the health, New South Wales government health, um, and I do presentations for them. And uh, yeah, a lot of the school psychologists are just completely overwhelmed at the moment because of the fact that kids are so stressed and anxious about you know being on the devices and having that extra stress. I mean, I was talking to one of the psychologists and she was saying that out west there was a school and I can't remember what school it was, but because of the fact that a lot of the kids didn't have access to the devices or would only have one computer at home so they couldn't do it, rather than setting everything up online, what they did was they asked the teachers that every day they would go and visit a certain number of students. So, you know, if they had, say, 30 students in their class then over the week they would visit every every child and they'd take them books and stuff for them to read but they'd also eyeball them so they'd actually see them they wouldn't touch them you know they'd keep the distance but they'd see them during that crisis give them the books and everything and get the, what they needed off of them but it meant that they could actually have that interaction with them as well and they had hard copies of things to actually read so they didn't have all the stress about that and then they were given a few days and then the teacher would come back and again um and and the success rate was it was huge they didn't have all the stress and anxiety associated with trying and yeah i'm not surprised i'm not sure why yeah, that sort of thing. I also know Christchurch, which is really interesting. When they had the earthquake at Christchurch, all of the electricity and everything was out for several months. So the teachers didn't have access to and couldn't do. So they just stopped all learning for a couple of months. The students that year did better in their HSC than they did the year before or the year after, after having two months off, completely off, nothing to do. <laughs> they couldn't do any wow. study or anything. And they did better, yeah, than the other years. That's amazing. Yeah, well, when they got back, A, they'd had the rest and they'd been able to deal with what was going on, right? It's a really stressful situation. So they were able to deal with it as a family and not have the kids also needing to log on and do all the stuff with school. But also when they got back, the teachers were able to just focus on what they actually needed to learn rather than all the extra fluff, fluff in the in the curriculum. And so they just focused on what they needed and then they ended up doing better. Wow. At the end of the time. So I'm not sure why our government couldn't think, hey, let's just let's just have a couple of months off. Let's yeah. just yeah. And learn not from that. stress. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you're saying fits with what I'm hearing from parents of children trying to learn on devices, misunderstanding teachers' um, instructions and getting highly anxious. <laughs> and there's no one to eyeball them that's no. a teacher saying, No, I didn't mean you, I meant the lower yeah. ones in the class do more homework. No, you're fine. You're fine. You're okay. But Relax. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But also from a health and wellbeing position to actually see them because anyone can log on, right? You can log on and look as though you're actually there and look as though you're okay yep. for that two minutes on Skype or what Zoom or however or Google Classrooms or however they're doing it. But to actually be able to go and see, yeah, they're having showers, they're washing, they're eating, they're you know, and yeah. so on. It's so important, as you would know from a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure why we didn't rethink. Maybe next time. <laughs> Mark, I've heard that schools in Silicon Valley actually ban technology for their children. Yeah, there's a, a group of schools called the Waldorf Schools. Um, and in primary school, there's no technology in the Waldorf Schools. And then in high school, they slowly introduce technology in the later years. And it's a private school, 
and you have to sign, the parents have to sign a form saying that they'll also restrict technology from their kids as well. So it's a, it's a whole community event around the technology and they're extremely successful in Silicon Valley um, and a lot of the Silicon Valley executives do send their kids to those schools because of the fact they know that to be innovative and to be, you know, smart and intelligent and to be the next executive of Google, you need to be off the devices and thinking. You need to know how to actually be innovative and how to collaborate and how to work with other people and how to manage people and do all those things. And so they they send them, their kids to those schools. Both uh, Bill Gates is renowned for having said he thought he was off record, but the, the – um, Journalist was still recording, um, and the journalist asked if he would give a. This was just after the iPads came out. If he'd give an iPad to one of his kids, and he said, "No, you'd have to be an idiot to give a kid an iPad." <laughs> um, and Bill Gates again is also well known for restricting his kids' access to technology. Um, Zuckerberg, if you look at all of Zuckerberg's posts and stuff, so on on Pinterest and so on, when he does, he, I mean, he's very. Um, uh, he, he restricts the amount of stuff that's on those sites. But when you do see them, he doesn't have TVs and things in his home because, again, he doesn't like the idea of having technology yeah, at home and he's got new baby and all the rest of it and knows the effects that it can have. So he it restricts all, as well. It? it does. It really does. Um, we, well, I think we have to start acting like... Yeah, tech execs. <laughs> yes, the way, they certainly know why they're doing it, exactly. which is exactly what you've explained to us today so eloquently. Thank you so much for all your time today, Dr. Mark Williams. You have been so helpful in teaching us why, and hopefully this podcast will raise awareness as to why we should restrict access to devices, why children who do that of this generation will be far more successful in the future than their peers who don't and why parents and teachers should be helping children and teaching them how to restrict access to their devices for their resilience but also for their success in the future. Absolutely. So people can find more information on your website. They can find more about what you do. They can sign up for your free downloads on how to stop smartphone addictions. They can look at your Connected Teachers Academy, which is your new teacher's support site, and teachers can take advantage of that. They can look at your regular courses, live chats, and lots of useful stuff for teachers. They can book you for media and speaking opportunities. And that website, please, is... Uh, so there's either drmarkwilliams.com which is my website just for everybody. And then there's connectedteachersacademy.com, which is for teachers and executives of schools. Uh, so either of those. Um, or just email me at drmark, drmark at com. If you or someone you know or care about is struggling with a device, addiction, depression or anxiety, consult a GP for a referral to a psychologist or look at the Australian Psychological Society's website and click on Find a Psychologist database. If you or anyone is suicidal, please call Lifeline. That number is 13 11 14, accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Thank you, Dr. Mark Williams, for giving us so much time and wonderful information and being such a pleasure to talk to. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Amanda. Please note any references to people, stories or scenarios mentioned in this podcast are an amalgamation of experiences. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes.